This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton Section 8 Chapter 3 Browning and His Marriage Part 1 Robert Browning had his faults, and the general direction of those faults has been previously suggested. The chief of his faults, a certain uncontrollable brutality of speech and gesture when he was strongly roused, was destined to cling to him all through his life, and to startle with the blaze of a volcano even the last quiet years before his death. But anyone who wishes to understand how deep was the elemental honesty and reality of his character, how profoundly worthy he was of any love that was bestowed upon him, need only study one most striking and determining element in the question, Browning's simple, heartfelt, and unlimited admiration for other people. He was one of a generation of great men, of great men who had a certain peculiar type, certain peculiar merits and defects. Carlyle, Tennyson, Ruskin, Matthew Arnold were all alike in being children of a very strenuous and conscientious age, alike in possessing its earnestness and air of deciding great matters, alike also in showing a certain almost noble jealousy, a certain restlessness, a certain fear of other influences. Browning alone had no fear. He welcomed, evidently without the least affectation, all the influences of his day. A very interesting letter of his remains in which he describes his pleasure in a university dinner. Praise, he says in effect, was given very deservedly to Matthew Arnold and Swinburne, and to that pride of Oxford men, Clough. The really striking thing about these three names is the fact that they are united in Browning's praise in a way which they are by no means united in each other's. Matthew Arnold, in one of his extant letters, calls Swinburne a young pseudo-Shelley, who, according to Arnold, thinks he can make Greek plays good by making them modern. Mr. Swinburne, on the other hand, has summarized Clough in a contemptuous rhyme. There was a bad poet named Clough whom his friends all united to puff, but the public, though dull, has not quite such a skull as belongs to believers in Clough. The same general fact will be found through the whole of Browning's life and critical attitude. He adored Shelley, and also Carlyle, who sneered at him. He delighted in Mill, and also in Ruskin, who rebelled against Mill. He excused Napoleon III and Lander, who hurled interminable curses against Napoleon. He admired all the cycle of great men, who all contemned each other. To say that he had no streak of envy in his nature would be true but unfair, for there is no justification for attributing any of these great men's opinions to envy. But Browning was really unique, in that he had a certain spontaneous and unthinking tendency to the admiration of others. He admired another poet, as he admired a fading sunset or a chance spring leaf. He no more thought whether he could be as good as that man in that department than whether he could be redder than the sunset or greener than the leaf of spring. He was naturally magnanimous in the literal sense of that sublime word. 
His mind was so great that it rejoiced in the triumphs of strangers. In this spirit Browning had already cast his eyes round in the literary world of his times, and had been greatly and justifiably struck with the work of a young lady poet, Miss Barrett. That impression was indeed amply justified. In a time when it was thought necessary for a lady to dilute the wine of poetry to its very weakest tint, Miss Barrett had contrived to produce poetry which was open to literary objection, as too heady and too high-coloured. When she erred, it was through an Elizabethan audacity and luxuriance, a straining after violent metaphors. With her reappeared in poetry a certain element which had not been present in it since the last days of Elizabethan literature, the fusion of the most elementary human passion with something which can only be described as wit, a certain love of quaint and sustained similes, of parallels wildly logical and of brazen paradox and antithesis. We find this hot wit as distinct from the cold wit of the school of Pope in the puns and buffooneries of Shakespeare. We find it lingering in Hudibras, and we do not find it again until we come to such strange and strong lines as those of Elizabeth Barrett in her poem on Napoleon. Blood fell like dew beneath his sunrise sooth, but glittered dew-like in the covenanted and high-rayed light. He was a despot, granted, but the Greek autos of his autocratic mouth said, Yea, I, the people's French. He magnified the image of the freedom he denied. Her poems are full of quaint things, of such things as the eyes in the peacock fans of the Vatican, which she describes as winking at the Italian tricolor. She often took the step from the sublime to the ridiculous, but to take this step one must reach the sublime. Elizabeth Barrett contrived to assert what still needs, but then urgently needed, assertion. The fact that womanliness, whether in life or poetry, was a positive thing, and not the negative of manliness. Her verse, at its best, was quite as strong as Browning's own, and very near as clever. The difference between their natures was a difference between two primary colours, not between dark and light shades of the same colour. Browning had often heard not only of the public but of the private life of this lady from his father's friend Kenyon, the old man who was one of those rare and valuable people who have a talent for establishing definite relationships with people after a comparatively short intercourse, had been appointed by Miss Barrett as her fairy godfather. He spoke much about her to Browning, and of Browning to her, with a certain courtly garrulity which was one of his talents, and there could be little doubt that the two poets would have met long before had it not been for certain peculiarities of the position of Miss Barrett. She was an invalid, and an invalid of somewhat unique kind, and living beyond all question under very unique circumstances. Her father, Edward Moulton Barrett, had been a landowner in the West Indies, and thus, by a somewhat curious coincidence, had borne a part of that same social system which stung Browning's father into revolt and renunciation. The part, played by Edward Barrett, however, though little or nothing is known of it, was probably very different. He was a man, conservative by nature, a believer in authority in the nation and the family, and endowed with some facilities for making his conceptions prevail. He was an able man, capable in his language of a certain bitter felicity of phrase. He was rigidly upright and responsible, 
and he had a capacity for profound affection. But selfishness of the most perilous sort, an unconscious selfishness, was eating away his moral foundations, as it tended to eat away those of all despots. His most fugitive moods changed and controlled the whole atmosphere of the house, and the state of things was fully as oppressive in the case of his good moods as in the case of his bad ones. He had what is perhaps the subtlest and worst spirit of egotism, not that spirit merely which thinks that nothing should stand in the way of its ill-temper, but that spirit which thinks that nothing should stand in the way of its amiability. His daughters must be absolutely at his beck and call, whether it was to be browbeaten or caressed. During the early years of Elizabeth Barrett's life, the family had lived in the country, and for that brief period she had known a more wholesome life than she was destined ever to know again until her marriage long afterwards. She was not, as is the general popular idea, absolutely a congenital invalid, weak and almost moribund from the cradle. In early girlhood she was slight and sensitive indeed, but perfectly active and courageous. She was a good horsewoman, and the accident which handicapped her for so many years afterwards happened to her when she was riding. The injury to her spine, however, will be found, the more we study her history, to be only one of the influences which were to darken those bedridden years, and to have among them a far less important place than has hitherto been attached to it. Her father moved to a melancholy house in Wimpole Street, and his own character growing gloomier and stranger as time went on. He mounted guard over his daughter's sickbed in a manner compounded of the pessimist and the disciplinarian. She was not permitted to stir from the sofa, often not even to cross two rooms to her bed. Her father came and prayed over her with a kind of melancholy glee, and with the avowed solemnity of a watcher by a deathbed. She was surrounded by that most poisonous and degrading of all atmospheres, a medical atmosphere. The existence of this atmosphere has nothing to do with the actual nature of prolongation of disease. A man may pass through three hours out of every five in a state of bad health, and yet regard, as Stevenson regarded, the three hours as exceptional and the two as normal. But the curse that lay on the Barrett household was the curse of considering ill health the natural condition of a human being. The truth was that Edward Barrett was living emotionally and aesthetically like some detestable decadent poet upon his daughter's decline. He did not know this, but it was so. Scenes, explanations, prayers, fury, and forgiveness had become bread and meat for which he hungered. And when the cloud was upon his spirit, he would lash out at all things and everyone with the insatiable cruelty of the sentimentalist. It is wonderful that Elizabeth Barrett was not made thoroughly morbid and impotent by this intolerable violence and more intolerable tenderness. In her estimate of her own health she did, of course, suffer. It is evident that she practically believed herself to be dying, but she was a high-spirited woman, full of that silent and quite unfathomable kind of courage, which is only found in women and she took a much more cheerful view of death than her father did of life. Silent rooms, low voices, lowered blinds, long days of loneliness, and the sickliest kind of sympathy, had not tamed a spirit which was swift and headlong to a fault. She could still own the truth, the magnificent fact that her chief vice was impatience. Tearing open parcels instead of untying them, 
looking at the end of books before she had read them, was, she said, incurable with her. It is difficult to imagine anything more genuinely stirring than the achievement of this woman who thus contrived, while possessing all the excuses of an invalid, to retain some of the faults of a tomboy. Impetuosity, vividness, a certain absoluteness and urgency in her demands, marked her in the eyes of all who came in contact with her. In after years, when Browning had experimentally shaved off his beard, she told him with emphatic gestures that it must be grown again that minute. There we have very graphically the spirit which tears open partials, not in vain or as a mere phrase did her husband after death describe her as all a wonder and a wild desire. She had, of course, lived her second and real life in literature and the things of the mind, and this in a very genuine and strenuous sense. Her mental occupations were not mere mechanical accomplishments, almost as colorless as the monotony they relieved, nor were they colored in any visible manner by the unwholesome atmosphere in which she breathed. She used her brains seriously. She was a good Greek scholar, and read Aeschylus and Euripides unceasingly with her blind friend Mr. Boyd, and she had and retained, even to the hour of her death, a passionate and quite practical interest in great public questions. Naturally, she was not uninterested in Robert Browning, but it does not appear that she felt at this time the same kind of fiery artistic curiosity that he felt about her. He does appear to have felt an attraction, which may almost be called mystical, for the personality which was shrouded from the world by such sombre curtains. In 1845, he addressed a letter to her in which he spoke of a former occasion on which they had nearly met, and compared it to the sensation of having once been outside the chapel of some marvellous illumination, and found the door barred against him. In that phrase it is easy to see how much of the romantic boyhood of Browning remained inside the resolute man of the world, into which he was to all external appearance solidifying. Miss Barrett replied to his letters with charming sincerity and humour, and with much of that leisurely self-revelation which is possible for an invalid who has nothing else to do. She herself, with her love of quiet and intellectual companionship, would probably have been quite happy for the rest of her life if their relations had always remained a learned and delightful correspondence. But she must have known very little of Robert Browning, if she imagined he would be contented with this airy and bloodless tie. All the times of his life he was sufficiently fond of his own way. At this time he was especially prompt and impulsive, and he had always a great love for seeing and hearing and feeling people, a love of the physical presence of friends, which made him slap men on the back and hit them in the chest when he was very fond of them. The correspondence between the two poets had not long begun when Browning suggested something which was almost a blasphemy in the Barrett household, that he should come and call on her as he would on anyone else. This seems to have thrown her into a flutter of fear and doubt. She alleges all kinds of obstacles, the chief of which were her health and the season of the year and the east winds, if my truest heart's wishes avail, replied Browning obstinately, you shall laugh at the east winds yet, as I do. End of section 8